It's amazing what God's people can do when we lay aside our personal preferences and we lay aside our pride and we, we come together recognizing that the gift of this season is through Jesus and because of his gift of eternal life that it's our desire not just to receive but that we would bless other people. One of my hopes for you and your family as Lindsay and I have strived this Christmas season, as, as we move closer and closer to Christmas Day, it seems to get more hectic. It seems to become more stressful, and we try to continue to emphasize to our children, it's not about the festivities, it's not about the presents, but it's all about the celebration of a child that was born that truly not only changed the world, but has changed all of eternity. Amen? I often wonder what it must have been like, what questions must have been swirling around on that very first Christmas morning. There in an obscure town called Bethlehem that was not a, a large city by any stretch of imagination, in a stable that was made for what? For animals. There in a manger, literally a feeding trough that was filled with hay that was supposed to feed donkeys and other animals. At that moment, it held the Savior of the world. And as the hymn writer once wrote, I wonder if people looked upon that stable that night and wondered, what child is this? If we're honest, even today, 2,000 years later, people are still asking that same question. Just who is Jesus? They read their Bibles. They watch some pastors on church. They look at Christians. They look at how the church operates, and they wonder, who is this Jesus that they, Christians, worship and celebrate? My view, my, my guess, is that even those who aren't followers of Jesus— even those who don't claim to, to walk and to, um, to claim faith in Jesus Christ, they probably have a good opinion of Jesus, right? I think most people, even today, especially in America, think that Jesus was a good man. They believe that he taught us many great lessons. The Bible's a, a good book. That Jesus, in fact, was a, a good example for many of us today. You know, I was thinking if they were taking those daily tracking polls that you see when you watch politics and you see the, the presidential candidates and they kind of tick up and down and they kind of see where they are, my guess or my assumption is that if they were to do that of Jesus today, he'd probably have a pretty good opinion uh, rating. I think that he'd probably have above 50% because people believed that he, even today, was a good man. But here's the problem. You can't just like Jesus. If you look at the men and women in the Bible, especially those that came into physical contact with Jesus, no one ever acted indifferently when they were around him. No one was ambivalent about their, their walk or what they viewed Jesus. Once they realized what Jesus was actually claiming about himself, pretty bold claims, the Savior of the world, the one true Messiah, the Son of God. Once they understood what Jesus was saying about himself, they had one of three reactions. Some were scared of him. Some were furious. Think about the religious leaders of the time. 
And yet some understood who he truly was, and they knelt down and they bowed down and worshiped him. But understand, church, no one acted indifferently to Jesus. No one looked upon Jesus during his time and said, oh, what a good person. Oh, he's such a great teacher. Oh, he's such an inspiring leader, and he makes me want to become a better version of myself. He did not give that option to them in the Bible. And friends, he does not give that option to us today. As we've been studying through the book of John, if you've been with us, We've seen that the disciples, as they get to know Jesus more and more, they have that same question, just who is this Jesus who can calm the waves, who can raise the dead to life, who can make the blind to see? Even though they were walking with him, they continue to ask that question, just who are you, Jesus? And as we travel through the book of John, we've seen that Jesus, he reveals himself more and more. And as he does so, that question that the hymn writer asks, what child is this? Jesus very clearly and exactly tells us who he is. In John chapter 6, after feeding 5,000 men, we don't know how many people total because you don't know. That's just men. You include women and children. It could have been up to 20,000 people. After feeding them, he calls himself what? The bread of life. In John chapter 9, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And then to illustrate his point that he truly is the light of the world, he then goes and he heals a man who was born blind. In John chapter 10, which is where we're going to be this morning, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to, to open them with me to John chapter 10. Jesus, he gives two images to reveal exactly who he is. Last week was the first image in John chapter 10. He calls himself the door. And we said that Jesus says that I'm the door. Remember, he was the entrance into the sheepfold. The only way to come into that sheepfold was to go through the shepherd was to go through that door. And Jesus says, I am the door. I am the one and the only way to gain access into God's forever family is to come through me. Later in John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty bold claim he makes there. And then in this morning, beginning in verse 11, we're going to see that Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So would you stand with me in the honor, in honor of the reading of God's word? We're going to continue in John chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 11, and I'm going to read through verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Jesus makes these remarks. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters. He flees, why? Because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He says once again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as a father knows me, and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, for this reason, the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority 
to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You know, many times when we study this passage in John chapter 10, especially if you were raised in church, you hear this, and usually the pastor will spend a a considerable amount of time talking about how dumb of an animal the sheep are, right? And that's true. There's no way around it. Uh, um, Sheep are not intelligent animals. However, that's not going to be the focus of what I'm going to talk about this morning. You see, I think it's important that we understand that the sheep are not the emphasis of the story here. Jesus makes it very clear that the emphasis of this text, the emphasis of what Jesus is saying is don't look at the sheep, but instead the emphasis is on the overwhelming love of the shepherd. You see, friends, let's make sure that when we read God's Word that we understand that every letter, every word that we read in this book from Genesis to Revelation, it's about God. It's about Jesus. But it's so tempting for us to want to put ourselves into the middle of this and act as if the Bible exists and that everything in the Bible revolves around us. And we want to make ourselves the center of God's Word. Friends, we aren't the center of the Word. In fact, as you read God's word, the Bible characters aren't even the focus of the text. God himself is always the focus and the emphasis of scripture. So Jesus comes out pretty strong here in verse 11. He says, listen, make no mistake about it. I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the true shepherd. And eventually he will willingly lay down his life for his flock. He'll lay down his life for a sheep. Anytime that we see the the word flock or we understand Jesus talking about sheep, understand he's talking about his children. In fact, there are five times in four verses that we just read that Jesus promises that he will eventually lay down his life for a sheep. You see it in the verses 11, verses 15, 17, and 18. And Jesus makes this point in verse 12. That he is unlike the hired hand. Now, who's the hired hand in the story? The hired hand, you go back to chapter 9 and understand he's talking about those false shepherds, which meant the religious leaders of the day. Jesus said, look, I'm not like those false leaders. I'm not like the religious leaders who they're only in it for what? The paycheck. They're only in it for the money. Sure, those hired hands who are, are paid to look after the sheep, they may do their job. They may look after their sheep. But as soon as danger arrives on the scene, verse 13, what does the hired hand do? He flees. Why? Because he's only in it for himself. He's only in it for the money. But Jesus says, I am the true shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And when danger presents itself, I'm not going to flee. Why? Because those are my people. Those are, that's my children. I'm not going to leave them. In fact, Jesus says, not am I going to leave them. I'm not going to flee. In fact, I am going to stand in the gap for them. Now let's take a time out here for just a second. It's always important when we read scripture that we read it in context. We can make the Bible say anything that we want it to say if we don't read it in context and we don't understand what's going on here. So who exactly is this wolf that Jesus is talking about? He says that when the wolf comes, that the, the sheep scatter, and who, who's this wolf and what's Jesus referring to here? Listen to me, friends. 
The wolf is not referring to any amount of difficulty or tragedy or hardship that you might have. Jesus is not saying in this passage, if you're my child, I'm going to protect you from any trial. If you're my child and you love me enough and you pray hard enough and you read my word, you will never have any difficulty. I'm going to protect you from any trial that might come your way. That's not what he is saying. What he's saying is that wolf represents something much bigger than just a a common or an everyday or even a large trial in your life. Friends, the wolf is the greatest enemy of our souls, which is what? He's talking about sin and death. So when you hear this word wolf, understand Jesus saying that he's going to protect us from the greatest enemy of our time, which is sin and death. So when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, what he is promising is his provision. What what he's promising is his guidance, his protection. In essence, what he's saying is, friends, listen, when the enemy comes, understand you are eternally secure. You are mine because I will break the teeth out of the mouth of the wolf when he comes for me. You are mine and I will handle the greatest enemy of your life, death and sin once and for all. Let's read this text correctly. This is not a promise that you will never have a difficulty. This is not a promise that you will never have something that's incredibly hard for you to walk through in life. But instead, understand Jesus is talking from an eternal perspective. Eternally speaking, you are secure in the Good Shepherd. This text is about our eternity. This text is about the gospel. And look closely at verse 15 with me for just a minute. Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is saying, don't miss this. That I'm going to lay down my life, and when I do so, I am going to kill the wolf. I'm going to kill sin and death once and for all. Now, friends, how does this work? How is it that Jesus, who's telling the story, is going to to go to the cross eventually? How is it that he is going to eventually kill sin and death? Give me just two minutes to explain the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel says that Jesus, that when he came to earth, that he lived in perfect obedience to his Father. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way, just like we are, and yet he was without sin. The only person to ever walk this earth to perfectly and completely obey his Father. Jesus lived a perfect life. And as a result of that, at the end of his life, he died upon the cross. But understand, friends, what is the cross all about? What the cross is about is understanding that when Jesus was placed upon that cross, what he's doing on that cross is he's absorbing all of God's wrath against all of the sins of mankind. He's absorbing all of the wrath that you and I deserve because of our sin. All of our sin, this is great news, in the past, 
All of the sins you're going to commit today, and the best news is all of the sin you will ever commit for the rest of your life, it was fully absorbed by Jesus. So that now, don't miss this, if you're a follower of Christ, if you are a child of God, that when God looks upon you, he sees you through the lens of the blood of his son Jesus. So now when he sees you, he sees you as spotless. He sees you as blameless. It sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. The truth of the gospel is that when God sees those of us who have trusted as Jesus as our Savior, that he sees us as blameless. Now, I don't know about you, I know I'm not blameless. I've got a list of things that I've done today, not this week, but today that proved to me I am not blameless. I am not spotless. I have sinned all the time, including this morning. Do you know how God sees me? Spotless. You know how God sees me? Blameless. Why? Because he sees me not through the lens of my works, because what I have done, but when God looks upon me, all of the righteousness of Christ has been credited to my account. So now when he looks upon me, he sees me as spotless and blameless. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, meaning Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Church, when you think about it, this is stunning. This is nothing short of a scandal. The perfect son of God never committed one sin, lived his life in perfect obedience to God. What does he get in reward for that? He's crucified on the cross. Who deserved to be on that cross? You and I, right? And not only when Jesus is on that cross, does he take all of your sin, all of your, your, your iniquity, all of the things that you've done wrong, not only when Jesus is on that cross, does he take all of your sin and place it upon Jesus? It gets even better than that. Then he says, for those who repent of their sin, those who confess Jesus as their Savior, all of God's righteousness, all of Jesus' perfect obedience, it is then transferred to you so that when God sees you, he sees you not as yourself, but he sees you through the eyes and through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So remember this. Whenever that wolf comes, the greatest enemy of, any enemy of our souls, sin and death, he may growl at us, he may snarl his teeth at us, but Jesus, our good shepherd, he laid down his life. Why? So that he could break the teeth out of the mouth of the wolf. And so, friend, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you already have the eternal victory no matter what this world brings. And that is why we can rejoice today. You know, I've seen in other countries where they've got, uh, I think they call them like a snake charmer. You know what I'm talking about? Where they, they'll put a snake in this little basket and this guy or girl, I've never seen a girl do it, but they're usually smarter than guys, so that's why they don't do it, you know? <laughs> they'll play some flute or, or some instrument and that snake will come up there. 
Let me just be honest with you for a second. I am terrified of snakes. I hate snakes. Noah's sitting on the third row, and right now he's probably looking at mom saying, we don't say the word hate. And we don't, but I hate snakes, all right? I don't hate people, don't hate, you know, whatever. I hate snakes. Let me remind you, when Satan came in the, when he came, when he came and, and talked to someone in the garden of Genesis chapter 3, what form did he come in? A snake, a serpent. You people that have snakes as pets and put them around and crawl around, they need to be at Cook's Pest Museum. They don't need to be at your house, okay? All right, I just had to be honest with you because I'm using this illustration. Uh, I was looking for um, a picture. I was Googling, you know, the snake charmer on there. I couldn't even do it. I looked at it, but I said, like, stop. I can't even look at it. Use your own imagination. You know what I'm talking about, right? So they, they do this weird thing where they'll, they'll play their flute, they'll play this instrument, all of a sudden the, the snake will come out, right? I learned something about this. I learned why they're not afraid of that snake as he makes his way up there. You know why? Because they've super glued the snake's mouth shut. <laughs> Think about that. They play their music, that snake comes out, he can do all that he wants. It can rear back. It can act like it's big and bad, but it can't do anything. Do you see where I'm going with this, friends? Church, that's the wolf. That's what Christ has already done to sin and death. Satan can bow up. Satan can cause us moments of difficulty. He can even bring tragedy into our life. But for those of us who are in Christ, he can no longer do anything to us. Why? Because Jesus has defamed him. He's taken his teeth out of him so he can act big and bad. But we already have the victory through Jesus. I want you to notice something interesting in verse 18. Verse 18, it says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Friends, Jesus willingly laid down his life for his sheep. This wasn't some tragic accident. This wasn't God fell asleep at the wheel, and then all of a sudden, oh my, I didn't know this was Jesus was going to die on the cross. No, no, no. This was God's design from the very beginning of time. So while other religious leaders, these false shepherds, while they were using God's people to profit for themselves, it was all about them. That's why he calls them the hired hand. Jesus, he gave himself not to profit for himself, but to profit for God's people. He is the true shepherd who laid down his life for his children. So the religious leaders, they used the people that they were looking after for their own interest. But Jesus, he was looking out for the best interest of his children. So when people today ask the question, what child is this? Just who is this Jesus? Friends, he has clearly in this passage demonstrated exactly who he is. Who is he? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Friends, Jesus is the baby who was born in a manger who willingly laid down his life. Why? To pay the debt that you and I owed because of our sin. And why did he, what happened when he paid for our sin? He purchased, purchases us back so that we might gain access into God's forever family. That's exactly who Jesus is. 
Now, quickly, before I wrap up, there are three ways that you can respond to this news of Jesus being the good shepherd. There are three ways that you can understand. You say, okay, I understand Jesus is the good shepherd, and that to become part of his family, that we must uh, admit our sin, that we confess our sin before God, we confess our need, that we cannot save ourselves, that we can't earn our way into God's good graces, and that we commit to live our lives for him. There's three ways that you can respond to the gospel and to the good news of Jesus being our good shepherd. The first is to say, you know, no way. It's not for me. I hear what you're saying, and I understand that Jesus is the good shepherd, but it's just not for me. Now, friends, most people who choose this response to say, I'm just not worthy of, of becoming a follower of Jesus, it's because of something that they've done in their past. They think that their sin is so great that God actually can't forgive me. They believe that they have actually out-sinned the grace of God. People who think this way think that something that they've done, maybe even if that's you, it's something that you're struggling with right now, that it has excluded you from being forgiven. It's kept you from experiencing the grace and the mercy and the salvation that God offers us through Jesus. Friends, if that's you, let me let God speak to you. This isn't Blake's opinion. This isn't what Baptists believe. This is what God's word says. Isaiah 1 verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Once again, we see this incredible, this unbelievable exchange that God makes with those of us who are his children. Notice the first thing that he does. He acknowledges, yes, you are sinful. Look, he says it right there. Though your sins are like scarlet, you're not clean. In fact, not only are you not clean, you are filthy because of your sin that puts that barrier between you and God. But the good news that continues is God says, I'm, not going, to, I'm going to take your sinfulness and I am going to make you white as snow. I'm actually going to grant to you purity that you have never had before. And listen to me. You can say, no, not me, God. I, I've done too much. There's no possible way that you can forgive me because of all that I have done in my past or all that I'm involved in right now. Friends, that would be like if you were in prison for committing some crime. And that crime, your punishment was that you were going to spend the rest of your life separated from your family. And then someone comes up to you and says, you know what, I've got good news for you today. The prison warden comes up and says, someone has paid your fine. You are now free. You have been pardoned. You can now go spend the rest of your days not sitting here in a jail cell, but you can now go and enjoy the freedom. You can now go spend the rest of your life with your family. Let's be honest. How many of us say, no way, I can't take it. 
I need to spend the rest of my days here in this jail cell. I'm not going to spend the rest of my days with my family. Why? Because I don't deserve the pardon. No way. You take that pardon. You admit, I don't deserve it. I didn't do anything to earn it. Someone has freely given me this gift, and you rejoice in that, and then you go and you spend the rest of your days with your family. Friends, if that's you, understand God's grace, God's mercy is way more than a pardon for your life here on earth, but God's grace, his mercy extends no matter what sins you've committed, no matter where you are in your life, and you can say you don't deserve it, but today I'm asking you, take the pardon. Take the free gift of salvation and stop saying that my sin is too great for God because nothing is too great for God. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. The second way you can respond to the news of Jesus being your good shepherd is to say, well, of course, of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm forgiven. Of course Jesus loves me. Look at all that I've done. Friends, most of the time, whenever someone acts indifferently, when someone acts ambivalent to God's grace and his mercy that we receive through the gift of his son Jesus, we act that way because we're comparing ourselves to someone else in our life. And usually that person is a far worse person than we think we are, right? If we think that we are a good person in comparison to someone else, somehow we think God's going to be cool with us because I'm better than my friend. If you think, friend, that you're a good person because your friend John's an idiot, that doesn't make you a good person. It makes your friend John an idiot, okay? If you think, well, hey, in comparison to my friend Sally, I'm a pretty good person. Sally's a liar. She's a cheater. Sorry if your name's Sally or John. I've just gave two names, all right? I'm, this isn't some. I'm not, not being passive-aggressive here, okay? Sorry. Um, if I'm saying that, I'm not going to. I'm not. You messed me up here, all right? Um, if you say that God doesn't automatically think you're a good person, good, just because your friend's a bad person, it doesn't work that way. Here's what happens. We tend to think that if in comparison to someone else, that we're good. Because I don't do X, Y, and Z, and they do A, B, and C. Well, I'm a good person. I'm a better parent than she is. I'm a better husband than he is, because look what he does on the weekend. Look how many times he's hunting. Look how many times he's golfing. Look how many times he's away from his family. Or we think, hey, I'm a better person. That We can all do that, can't we? And by the way, when we do that, it's usually because we're comparing ourselves not to the best person we know, but we want to compare ourselves to the worst person that we know. And when you and I do that, we're crazy if we think that one day we're going to stand before God and say, God, here I am. I'm not John. God, here I am. I'm not Sally. Aren't you proud of me? Aren't you going to let me into your kingdom because I'm better than my worst friend? Aren't you going to allow me to have access into your your eternal home because of what I've done? Friends, we do not gain access into God's heavenly kingdom because of anything that we do or because of anything that we don't do. It's only because of Jesus' obedience that's credited to us that we gain access into God's family. I'm afraid that so many people, especially in America, that we think because we play the comparison game 
God's going to be cool with us. He's going to weigh our good and our bad, and we never weigh our good versus someone that's better than us. We're always weighing against the worst person we know. Well, surely, yeah, he's a good person. Yeah, I've done enough good things. God's not going to keep me away from him. So friends, when you hear the gospel, you can say, no way, not me. I'm not worthy. Or you can say, well, of course me. Yeah, I'm better than so-and-so. Or the third way, which is the way every follower of Jesus should respond, is to respond with worship and obedience. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. That word dwell, it's not something we focus on too much, is it? We're so busy today, aren't we? I'm not really sure what we're so busy doing, but we're always busy. Oh, I'm in a rush. Oh, I'm in a hurry. We're always just busy going from place to place. But the Apostle Paul says, to let the words of Jesus, what? Dwell in our hearts. And as a follower of Jesus, when we do that, when we allow the words of Jesus as we spend time with him to dwell in our hearts, what's the byproduct? As as we dwell on God's word, then we will teach and admonish one another concerning the words of Jesus. So as we dwell on God's word, the result is then we're going to teach, we're going to admonish, we're going to encourage others with the words of Jesus. And the Bible says that that will lead us to do what? As we teach and admonish one another in the words of Jesus, the result will be worship. It says that we'll worship singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And eventually, as we leave a lifestyle of worship, the end result is that we'll have what? A thankful heart. Friends, never underestimate the power. Never underestimate the joy of living a life with a thankful heart. Not just something that we focus on at Thanksgiving. But friends, when we hear the gospel proclaimed, the right response for a true disciple of Jesus is worship and obedience that springs out of a thankful heart. So as I close this morning, I want to ask you. In fact, I want to beg you this morning. If you have never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, if you have never recognized that your sin, all of our sins, we're all sinful, separates you from a holy God, that there is nothing good within you that deserves to become part of God's family. If you've never done that before, Don't leave this morning without making the most important decision of your life. To confess your sin. To admit that you cannot earn salvation. That you cannot do enough good things. You can't be a good enough spouse. You can't raise good enough children in order to gain access into God's family. But instead, you must confess your sin, admit your need, and then accept the free gift of salvation. Accept 
the greatest gift that's not under your tree, but the greatest gift that we celebrate at Christmas. That God left heaven's throne, allowed his son to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life. But friends, he did not come to this earth. He did not live a perfect life just to teach you some good moral lessons. But he came as a sacrifice. He came as the spotless, blameless Lamb of God who took upon the sins of the world, that if you would admit your need, if you would live for him, and that you would commit to making him your Lord and Savior, that he will grant to you that salvation that you have been longing for, that you have been working for, that you can't earn, you can only receive. Christ came, and he came for one reason. That was to break the teeth out of the mouth of that wolf. See, sin and death, you have no hold on me. Jesus, born on Christmas, died on that Good Friday. But friends, he's alive today. And he is waiting to be your Lord and Savior if you will call out to him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before you during this Christmas season, we first and foremost admit our need for you. We admit that there is nothing good within us. But oh, we thank you, not just for Christmas, not just for the manger, but we thank you for the cross that our sin was placed upon your son's shoulders, that he bore the wrath that we deserved so that we might be forgiven. And not only did your son take our penalty upon us, but he has extended to us grace and mercy and forgiveness. And Heavenly Father, I pray that right now that the Holy Spirit would touch each person's heart in this room who has never trusted Jesus as their Savior. Convict every life in this room of each person who feels like they can earn or just skate into heaven based on their efforts. And today, would your Holy Spirit touch their hearts and would you grant them your salvation that comes through the sacrifice of your son Jesus. We worship you. We celebrate you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.